It's 106 miles to Chicago. We've got a full tank of gas, half pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. Welcome aboard, fellow dorks. So excited to have you with us again. Or if this is your maiden voyage aboard the USS Dork, welcome. Thanks for giving us a test drive. For the first time, we are actually down one dork uh, for this episode as Jordan embarks on a different sort of voyage. We want to uh, take a moment to wish him the best. Uh, and rest assured, dear listeners, you'll be hearing from him again soon. I am Josh Remuth, and I do have two other dorks with me on this bucket of bolts. My older brother, a man who, if he were to build a time machine into a car, would definitely do it with some style. Dan, how are you? You mean tell me that you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? Well, the, the flux dispersal, right? The, it, the flux. It, di- it, we never actually do learn how the stainless steel construction impacts the flux dispersal because poor Einstein has to come back, you know, a minute later. Oh, that wasn't. That, that's not when when the when the Libyans show up. That's that's later. Correct. Yeah. Oh, okay. Doc is about to explain how the stainless steel construction impacts the flux dispersal. And then his, his alarm watch goes off as a reminder that Einstein's okay, about yeah. to zap out of, you know, time flux. Because so they I get the that, hell out of the way yeah. while the, you know, flaming tires come peeling in. Yeah, because there's one time when Einstein saves the day and then there's this time when Einstein screws the pooch. Um <laughs> Also uh, with us, we've got uh, a pilot along who has made the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs. Gabe, how are you? I'm good, and that's parsecs whether you're measuring by actual space-time, as in, you know, science, or in Lucas's old explanation of those being units of time and not distance. Either way, made that Kessel Run. And let me tell you, Solo was still a bad movie. Math was never my strong suit. Thanks for setting sail with me on a discussion tonight, which will contain the bare minimum of nuance and character development. I doubt that you will hear the phrase story arc or any in-depth conversations regarding narrative themes or subtext. That's because on this podcast, we are putting the pedal to the metal and talking about our favorite vehicles for movies, TV, books, heck, maybe even songs. Dan may want to spend a few moments extolling the virtues of Bruce Springsteen's pink Cadillac. And so to start us off, dorks, let's rev our engines with a warm-up question. And I'd like to know what your favorite vehicle that you've ever traveled in is. This can be a, a car, plane, bicycle you could have been the driver or the passenger um just your favorite real life vehicle that you've ridden in dan how about you so i admittedly uh was a little bit torn on where to go as it relates to this warm-up question my initial thought was the uss intrepid which is a battleship like an old school it was an actual battleship that is now permanently docked in new york city but it's basically a museum so i was on the uss intrepid it didn't actually go anywhere i thought i might get extra dork points though because i was on the uss intrepid to visit a star trek starfleet academy exhibit while I was there, but I pulled back. That's not going to be my you're, selection. You're, you're wandering a bit far astray. <laughs> I'm going to say 
the Eurostar, which is a train service that operates in Europe. It's, it's the bullet train, right? So it goes, you know, over 100 miles per hour. Uh, took the Eurostar from London to Belgium, to Brussels specifically, just a day trip. That's the beauty of the Eurostar. You can hop on it, get you where you need to go real quick, spend a day in Brussels, and then right on back to London. The podcast fan base knows of my affinity for train travel. We discussed that as part of our Bad Bond Hall of Fame and my desire to ride eventually the Orient Express. So I'm going to say favorite vehicle that I've ever traveled in, the Eurostar. Hope you didn't have any problems accessing platform nine and three quarters. No, no, no. I know how to get through that. No problem. Gabe, you? I think I got to say my original road trip car, and it wasn't mine. It was just the first car that I would have been on any sort of anything resembling a road trip in. Going from uh, Maryland to Michigan or Maryland to Pennsylvania, even most likely. Uh, in my dad's old El Camino is that classic black machine with uh, it had a little uh, it had that compartment over the storage spot in the back that sort of thing that made it part uh, sports car and part pickup truck um, but you know to my five-year-old eyes made it just look like the Batmobile so yeah there I was in those uh, sort of deep cloth seats um, dad's working the the tape deck and the radio is I mean, who am I, radio who am I kidding it's the tape deck he probably made one special for the trip and yeah, just going through and having road snacks and ending up at, uh, you know, in a, in a place of dorkdom or in a place of, you know, uh, the rest of the clan. But uh, yeah, I'd probably have to say that original El Camino. That was, uh, it had a commission. It was a, uh, one of those Blue Heron Maryland license plates and everything. It was a great machine. I remember this vehicle well, Gabe, and I, I always loved the look of it too. Although the last time that I remember seeing it, I believe your dad was using it to store firewood. So I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how long it endured. I think that is an accurate recollection. Uh, to be fair, he stored a lot of uh, gardening tools and other, you know, tools of his trade in the back of this car. So it was, it was uh, of dubious cleanliness to begin with. Uh, yeah, the uh, the firewood was probably the final nail in that car. <laughs> so I'm going to go with an, an old school set of wheels as well. It's an 86 Lincoln Town car that was uh, Dan was our grandfather's and then it was our dad's and then it sort of got passed around to the the three kids based on who needed it and I ended up driving this car which could also easily have been described as a boat so you know just to give you an idea, a mental picture, this thing was enormous. Driving this up and down the main line during college, when I was fortunate enough to have Low Rider come on the radio, uh, no tape decks here, Gabe. It was a really unique and special experience, and I will always look back on the, the town car fondly. Sad, sad, sadly, it died a noble death as well several, several years ago, and we all had to, had, had to move on. We all, I think, Josh, took a, took a turn behind the helm of, uh, of the boat. And that actually was sort of the second boat car that I think we drove. Right, that, right. That being the, uh, the follow-up to what we actually termed was the bomb. Yes, it, 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 it was an Impala that um, it, it, we called it the bomb for reasons which the listeners could probably expect. It looked as if an explosive had gone off 
inside that car and it was always the car as a kid that i was like oh please can we take mom's van please can we take mom's van and then oh no we're taking the bomb yep we're and it was the... just dreadfully disappointing right for, for the listeners picture a car that somehow at one and the same time appears as though a bomb has already gone off in it and that this vehicle itself could go off as a bomb at any yeah. given point in time as well it was a volatile riding experience to be sure i never drove it 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 died well before i was driving did you ever drive it dan i did i did and no, the one thing that i I, I wouldn't have guessed that the one thing that i distinctly remember was that the the gas gauge gave out <laughs> and dad used to use an old checkbook to log the mileage when he would put new gas in it so that he could reference said checkbook to know when he had to gas up again. It was the only way to know when you were about to run out of gas was to look at the checkbook ledger to see what the mileage was the last oh time you put petrol in it. The, the, the foible that I remember best is that the rear view mirror would constantly fall off. And so if it fell off in mid journey, whoever was in the front seat had to like hold it up there with their thumb and index fingers so that dad could see out the back of the car. That was, um, that was a rite of passage as a passenger <laughs> that we all, I think, had a go at. Th th thank you so much, dorks. That was a bit of a selfish exercise for, for Dan and I, but we certainly enjoyed it. Uh, but now we're going to dig into the content for, for this episode. Now, dorks, the energy shield can only be open for a short time, so you have to stay very close to your transports. The ion cannon will fire several shots to make sure that any enemy ships will be out of your flight path. When you've gotten past the energy shield, proceed directly to the rendezvous point. Understood? Yeah. Good luck. Okay, everybody to your stations. Let's go. For one point, what are some of the coolest vehicles featured in popular entertainment, Gabe? Uh, being me, and uh, guys, really no worries on the on your selfish road trip there, quote unquote. I, uh, I just basically finished laughing at those recollections because some of those are just the most your father, quote unquote, things I, I have heard in quite some time, growing up knowing him at least my whole life. Yeah, no, that's a, a, a checkbook to keep track of the mileage is um, almost painfully spot on. Anyway, uh, my, the first thing I'm going to throw out, predictably being me, is the Batmobile. Um, you talk about an iconic piece of pop culture uh, vehicle. That's, um, I mean, there's been, a, right now, among the three of us, we could each name three different Batmobiles, and each one would be as popular as the next, whether you're talking about the Tim Burton Batmobile design, uh, with that torpedo sort of thing that it could do when the sides ejected off, whether you're talking about the animated series Batmobile, which, uh, uh, Josh, I think it was you mentioned in, uh, in a toy form, you could pull the back jet out of it and have sort of an escape pod type thing, but it's just a design classic to begin with. Um, or, you know, Christopher Nolan's Tumblr design, which really made it this sort of urban tank. Batmobile is something that's, that's uh, withstood the test of time in many redesigns. But, you know, if we're just talking, what can we throw out in terms of pop culture cars? You've got Ecto-1 from Ghostbusters. You've got uh, Dan's DeLorean from Back to the Future. You've got uh, Bullet's Ford Mustang. You've got the car for Men in Black that, is, uh, that has a little red button that you don't push. You've got the A-Team's van. You've got the Turtle van from uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You've got Spinner cars from Blade Runner. You've got 
list anything from Mad Max, Fury Road. These are all just things that have a personality, I think is what we're talking about. When we're talking about cool vehicles featured in popular entertainment, Bonds, Aston Martin, I mean, hello, that's, uh, you talk about something with a number of versions. These are all things that bear some of the attitude and the, uh, even some of the weight of, of their respective franchise now and again. Gabe, you mentioned the Tumblr. What, what, a, what a unique and terrific choice that was by Christopher Nolan. I, I remember seeing that in a, in a magazine or uh, on, on like a news special or something before Batman Begins came out. And I thought, what in the world is this? This, this looks nothing like the Batmobile. What are they doing? And it just works perfectly uh, in that movie. And he's able to do so many things on it. Gabe, you also talked about the Ecto-1. That, that's one of my personal favorites. Ghostbusters is one of my absolute favorite movies. And, you know, the, the Ecto-1's transformation from a, a bomb-like cruiser into the, the vehicle that, that the Ghostbusters travel around in. And knowing that it came from those humble be beginnings, I think, adds to the character of that car. Gabe, I'm curious, what are your thoughts about just getting back to the, the Batman, Batmobile, Tumblr idea? I'm with Josh. When I first laid eyes on the Tumblr, I was admittedly a bit disappointed and I think thrown off because I was so accustomed to the Michael Keaton look for the Batmobile and I thought that was upgraded in Batman, the animated series. And to me, that is the ultimate version of the Batmobile and so the Tumblr kind of left me wanting and I thought they did a nice job of adding some of the Batman gadgets to it to make it work within that universe but I think aesthetically I still like I said was left wanting what, what were your thoughts initially and what are your thoughts now you know a decade removed from being introduced to that vehicle I don't have any recollection of what my initial thoughts were of it I, I don't have a, a memory like you guys do of uh, I, I think when I saw it in the trailers, I was like, okay, cool. That's what the Batmobile looks like this time around. I wasn't really questioning it. Charitably, let's say I was waiting to see it in action. But the beauty of this Tumblr is that it's perfectly in line with everything else Christopher Nolan is trying to do, especially in Batman Begins, which is to commit to a, at least a kind of realism. The Tumblr is perfectly explained away. The Batmobile is an improbable piece of engineering and hardware, as is pretty much everything we're going to talk about on this program today. You know, th there is no way it can, it can house grappling hooks and rockets and, uh, you know, some form of, I don't know, spike thrower for shooting, for, you know, blowing out tires and be bulletproof and be able to be this fast and maneuverable, you know, it, and yet um, what the Tumblr manages to do, and within the context of one scene, um, Morgan Freeman's character, Lucius Fox, explains it as it was built as a bridging vehicle, that it was meant to, during combat, uh, you know, make a jump, drag some lines behind it with another vehicle, and that would, you know, it would be sort of a fast action bridging vehicle. So it had to be tough, it had to be maneuverable, it had to at least bear some sort of weapon weight. And this is all perfectly in line with Batman's mission. And it's, in, it's perfectly in line with everything else that Batman Begins tries to do, which is ground what are the recognizable elements of the Batman mythos in, again, a kind of realism. It's not 100% real, but it all is internally consistent and it's recognizable and it is grounded. It doesn't get too phenomenal. I want to go back to something that Gabe mentioned about attitude and personality behind some of these vehicles, because I think some of the most memorable vehicles, or maybe the vehicles that work the best, are those that are emblematic of the attitude and the personality of those who are inside the vehicle. So uh, Gabe, you threw out the A-Team van, right? The A-Team is this 
ragtag, you know, bunch of mercenaries. You know, they're sort of from all over different paths, but they come together to help out those in need. And I think the van kind of represents that sort of hodgepodge of personalities. And here we are, and it might be a little dirty and it might be a little sloppy, you know, with not the polished edges, but we're going to get the job done. And that's exactly what the A-team does. That as a counterpoint to James Bond, the Aston Martin is this sleek vehicle. It's got all the, you know, the smoothness and the perfect design. And yes, it's filled with all the gadgets, but on the outside, before you get to any of the gadgets, it's just a beautiful piece of machinery, which of course houses this beautiful man inside who also has his sleek edges and his smooth surfaces. And so you, you know, you've got that nice play at hand. And one vehicle we haven't mentioned, and Josh, I know this is one near and dear to yours in my heart, and it's the Peugeot from Colombo. It's this beaten down French vehicle, right? A cop in, you know, Los Angeles is going to drive a, a French vehicle. And it looks like basically if our dad's bomb exploded and then hit the road again and then exploded again, that's what the Peugeot was. Colombo was constantly encountering car trouble, but it was, again, part of that personality. He represented himself to try and catch the killers off guard as sort of this sloppy, disheveled detective, you know, just kind of the cop on the beat, try and catch them off guard. And the car really played into that personality. And I think it really enhances the character. I am uh, woefully not up on my Columbo, but I would be remiss if I didn't note that um, the owner of the El Camino I stated earlier, uh, my dad's first car was a Peugeot. Uh, I don't know that he's ever made that connection, but I'll remind him of this as soon as, you know, maybe he's listening. Yeah, that, that Peugeot was what you mentioned, Dan, about it, Columbo constantly experiencing car trouble. And, you know, it, yes, it reflected Columbo's uh, understated appearance, and but, but it also just added so much comedy. He would always encounter that car trouble at the worst possible time, um, and just throwing him into r ridiculous situations. Another car that I think really works for its movie, and I suppose fits the character not that owns it, but that ends up driving it through most of the movie, is the Ferrari from Ferris Bueller. I mean, think of everything that that car means to Cameron, and also how perfectly it suits uh, this dashing young man, Ferris Bueller. That, that, that's a, a beautiful car, but also they're able to work it into the story of the movie. That's always been one of my favorites. If we're going to talk cars, I have to just extol the virtues, not of the pink Cadillac, as Josh set me up to do with Bruce Springsteen. No, we, really? No, 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 no. We're not going to go. We, we went down Thunder Road um, and, on a different podcast. This, this needs to be reserved for the DeLorean. Back to the Future is one of my most beloved movies of all time. And I honestly am not sure that as a 38-year-old adult, I would even know what a DeLorean looks like if not for this movie. Yes, DeLoreans were cars that existed that probably continue to exist in some way, shape, or form. But when I hear DeLorean, I mean, come on, let's be honest. When anybody hears the word DeLorean, what's the first thing you think of? You think of Marty McFly 
in Back to the Future. And you think of him running away from the Libyans and you think of him crashing into old Peabody's barn. And it works so well because it's such an outlandish design, but that works. It's a time travel device. So it's gonna look ridiculous in 1985. It's gonna look ridiculous in 1955. And then it also has the added benefit of it somehow looks ridiculous in 2015 when they go into the future because those cars are hover cars and it just looks so completely antiquated compared to the cars that he encounters in the, the 2015 future. But it's just, it's such a perfect design. It was such an interesting choice. It's fun. It obviously is cool looking, the design. We're gonna talk about that a little bit later on about what makes these things so effective. But you've got this high school kid who is constantly getting the tardies from Strickland. His band is not good enough to play at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. And he ends up rolling with a DeLorean time travel machine. Just the juxtaposition is just so perfect. The gull wing doors are, are my favorite part. I mean, clearly the most iconic part of that, that car. And I think they kind of got lucky that that didn't really catch on. That There are a couple of cars today that have gull wing doors and like you there's a there's a i think there's an alternate universe in which that really caught on as like this is the cool thing that all sports cars need to have and then it could have theoretically cheapened the the back to the future delorean fortunately we exist in this universe where that is not the case and we get to admire the delorean in all its glory whenever we think about back to the future there was one more bond car i wanted to mention uh, the, the Lotus Esprit from uh, Spy Who Loved Me. We'll circle back to this uh, car maybe a little later in the podcast when we discuss a different mode of transportation. But this is th this is another Dan, like you said, sleek, beautiful car that suits James Bond perfectly, uh, and that they went away from the Aston Martin and into this Lotus. Uh, you know, James Bond has done that a couple of times. He went through a, a BMW stretch in the Pierce Brosnan era, uh, which in my opinion did not work quite so well. Um, but this, uh, th this was just a beautiful car that they are able to turn into a gadget machine as well. The Spy Who Loved Me, I think, is the movie that features that. And that, um, yes. that was among my first James Bond movies. I think my first was Thunderball, and then I had Moonraker. And then somewhere within the first six in there was The Spy Who Loved Me. So this is one of my first Bond cars, too, after Goldfinger. Um, actually, I guess Thunderball uh, uses the DB5 in the very beginning. But um, it, it is just so cool. I mean, it looks <laughs> – actually, I'll be honest, Josh. The first thing it reminded me of, you know, to my whatever it was, probably two young eyes was a shuttlecraft. I thought, you know, it, yeah, it, sure. it, it's a cool, you know, it's white, it's sleek, it's streamlined, you know, Bond drives it right into the water and it's like, no, James, what are you doing? And then he's like, don't worry, it's a submarine. And it <laughs> totally is. And, you know, it can lay mines and, you know, you can breathe in it and it's okay. You know, it's leaking. No, it's fine. You'll pressurize it. It's cool. No worries. Q Branch has got it. I did think we should take a moment or two to just talk about our favorite of the Bond vehicles because it's, it's totally, I mean, there's almost one per movie. I mean, or, you know, if we were to, block it out maybe there's like 0.7 per every 2.5 movies or something like that as far as a new bond vehicle goes but anybody so if, if the lotus is 
Josh's vote, I want to put in, again, the DB5 is probably the classic, but saying that that's the unimpeachable one. So, yeah, outside of the DB5, which is your favorite? I uh, Well, I'm partial to – there's a moment in Casino Royale where uh, Daniel Craig's Bond touches down in the Bahamas and, you know, the music's going. He gets off the plane looking all cool, and then, uh, you know, it cuts to the highway and he's driving, and Bond's in a Ford. Like, it's just kind of a, it's a you know, fun little visual. Wah, wah. Exactly, yeah. You know, he hasn't earned the DB5 yet, the, the gold standard, the unimpeachable. Um, for myself, I was always partial to uh, uh, the Aston Martin from The Living Daylights, the winterized uh, Aston Martin. I mean, that's a, that's a cool car chase. It's got a lot of handy gadgets uh, to it. It's got a good look. I just think that was a uh, you know, something about the, the 1987 design of that model was uh, worked for me. I don't know. I thought it was sleek. Oh, you're spot on there, Gabe, because that's exactly the first one that came to mind for me. If the original DB5 is off the table, you're right. It just by itself, a cool look, but then you add in the gadgets, particularly the little like skis that that pop off the side for obviously, you know, winter transit because Q has, you know, Q Branch has thought of everything. He's a step ahead of everybody. Uh, but yeah, just, just a really cool looking vehicle. I've always been partial to that movie a lot. That That scene in particular is great even though that car unfortunately meets meets its demise. So with that off the table, I'm going to say favorite Bond vehicle is the Auric Goldfinger Rolls-Royce. Just a classic, I mean, none of us have ever driven a Rolls-Royce, but I remember watching that movie too and hearkening back to the old man. He loved the sound effects in that movie when the doors would close and there was just like this vacuum seal, like, you know, the old, like, boy, they don't make them like that anymore. Just a classic design. Yeah. It's like a bank vault that trunk. Oh, oh my goodness. Odd job and Auric are, they're stuck in there. If they want to get out, they need to get out. But that car is, is part of a couple great scenes. Of course, you know, it gets, it gets melted down eventually, but then, yeah, I mean, obviously the scene at the golf course is is a tried and true scene. So I'll say Or Goldfinger's Rolls Royce. She's a beauty. Phantom G37, isn't she? Something like that? I think you've got, I was going to say 37. The only thing you missed, Dan, is that it's got the little uh, pull down for the for Goldfinger to write in his checkbook. <laughs> Which our which our old man would also have appreciated. <laughs> he, he sure would. Goldfinger knew he, he was going to lose that guy. round before he ever even got there. So he yeah. thought, I need to bring the vehicle where I can pay out the check at the end. Well, how else is he going to keep you know track of the mileage in the checkbook ledger? <laughs> the uh, you know one Bond thing that I think um, deserves one bit of mentioning before we before we move on is uh, we uh, poo pooed the BMW era of uh, Pierce Brosnan for a bit there with you know some some legitimacy, but the uh, BMW featured in Tomorrow Never Dies was a, a neat little uh, action sequence, and uh, and that was probably the most notable car he got to, the backseat driver, uh, as the score calls it, section when he's in the back of the car trying to drive the car via cell phone pad. That was a uh, that was a pretty good sequence. That was good. It's also fitting for Germany. They're in Berlin, I think. Or Hamburg, maybe. Um, definitely you know, if you were a secret agent and you wanted to blend in, drive a BMW in Germany. I think that would do the trick. Um, moving on to, um, as my adorable Lotus Esprit 
transfers from land to water. There are plenty of seagoing vehicles that are among our favorites. The first one that springs to mind for me is the Red October uh, from the the Hunt for Red October with Sean Connery and Alec Baldwin. This is one of my, again, one of my all-time favorite movies. And I think this is a really, really cool submarine. Uh, there's also the the Dallas, the, the American sub in this movie, which is a, a more standard look. But the Red October, they make a point of noting how much bigger it is, how much longer it is than an ordinary submarine. The The top is kind of flat, which I think they used for, for movie reasons because they had to shoot scenes there at, at the end of the movie. But I think the design looks cool that way. Twin propellers in the back, the big spire sort of more towards the back of the submarine instead of in the middle or at the front of the submarine, as you see in some other designs. Uh, I just think that is a terrifically cool uh, boat, which is another category of vehicles, which we can get into. That's definitely um a notable uh, thing and I think they did some of that for design reasons too so you could at least like recognize the different ships in the in the exterior shots whether you're at the uh, Dallas whether sure. you're at Red October whether you're on the Navalog of note too is uh, uh, on the interiors each of those ships is in the climactic scene lit differently Red October has the traditional I think uh, red lighting I think the Canavalog goes um, goes yellow and Dallas goes blue so you always know where you are uh, when they cut between the uh, the scenes um, a, real, yeah. a real look behind the curtain here on Dorkfest, the podcast. Also directed by John McKiernan, who brought us Die Hard. We're full of fun little nuggets of trivia like that. Seriously, we should do one about Red October itself at some point, just as a movie. That's a, that, that movie continues to give me something year after year. But um, you, we were talking about subs. And also the Mystic, I think, the DSRV, the little um, sort of rescue sub, is a really neat uh, is a really neat piece of hardware too. And while we're talking about submarines, uh, since I introduced the Batmobile, I should probably mention the Bat Sub and the Bat Boat. Uh, whether we're talking about the the '60s era, you know, sort of speedboat uh, that Adam West and Burt Ward drove, or the animated series, pretty cool sort of hybrid Bat Boat and Bat Sub that was pretty torpedo-like in design, except for, as I recall, one fin on the back that just sort of you know helped control it. That was a uh, you know, Bat's got to go everywhere. Gotham's got a harbor. You know, you got to check out those things. That that was always a, a neat bit of hardware too. First of all, the design for basically anything Batman the Animated Series is outstanding. We already uh, talked about the Batmobile. The design, yeah. the aesthetic for the Batboat is phenomenal. When we take to the air, we're going to talk about the Batwing, and, and that thing is off, is off the charts. Totally. While we're staying in water, though, I'm actually going to go back to James Bond because James Bond has actually contributed – shockingly, a number of, of pretty cool seabound vessels as well. You think about the hang glider boat, uh, which I believe is from Moonraker. That's that's a Roger Moore situation. You got a very cool boat, and all of a sudden the boat, right, it's going to go right off the ledge. No worries. Q Branch has got you covered. You just take the hang glider. There you go. There was a really cool micro-machine toy that we had yes. of that boat, too, where the hang glider could, could pull out the back and you could extend the wings. That, that, that was tremendous. I got to say, most of my thoughts um, leading up into this recording strayed toward the micro-machines. Those were phenomenal little toys. I, for me, it was pretty much all Star Wars. I, that was almost exclusively what I had micro-machines applied. Did you guys have other stuff? Well, Micro Machines started branching out into those, into our beloved franchises as we got a little older. I remember 
distinctly going to Toys R Us one day and not even knowing this was back in the day when like you didn't actually know toys were coming out. You know, now there's, there's no surprise, you you know, six months in advance that things are coming out, but going to Toys R Us and there being not just the three pack micro machines, but the big rectangular box of 18 different star Wars vehicles from across the original trilogy and thinking, Oh my God, like I did not even know this was an option. And here it is. And as quickly as it was on the shelf, it was in the cart and thankfully was going home. Because you're right, Gabe, like they did an unbelievable job of packing detail and authenticity into those little vehicles. And we'll talk about, we're going to get into toys. So I don't want to, you know, spill the beans too much there. But to your point, yes, micro machines got it right. Josh, they got it right with the hang glider boat. And I suspect had they made a disco volante, they would have gotten that one right too, because the way that that vehicle was able to separate at the end, right? Largo is making his escape and the hydrofoil comes out, kind of almost like Johnny Quest. We haven't talked about Johnny Quest vehicles, but man, oh man, Race Bannon and and Dr. Benton Quest, those guys had some cool vehicles and exactly kind of like that where the hydrofoil comes out. James Bond got it right on land and at sea. Not to mention the Bondola. And also, I guess there was a huge <laughs> fishing boat, right, from The World Is Not Enough. We derided that movie a little bit in, uh, in one of the last podcasts, but um, kind of a, a neat craft. That's, that's, a terrific, that's a terrific scene. I, I totally agree with you there, Gabe. That's a cool scene and a cool boat. Uh, and especially, and perhaps in a, uh, a preview of an episode yet to be, uh, we, again, would be remiss if, while we're speaking about seafaring vehicles, didn't mention the Orca. Yeah, we've, we've got to talk about Quint's boat here. I mean, that's the, that's the boat that killed the shark, even if one maybe did need a bigger boat. Well, I think it's, it's also the boat that killed Quint. This is also true. While, while I agree with you, Gabe, I think the Orca is an example of a vehicle that is made better by its crew. So I think the Orca itself, aesthetically, yes, is, is cool and it's interesting and we remember it, but we remember it because of Brody and Hooper and Quint and lusting after killing the shark. So while I, while I agree with you, and as listeners know, any chance to talk about Jaws, I am on board with as much as I am on board about talking about Back to the Future. But I think that vehicle benefits from his crew, a vehicle that I don't think needs to benefit from its crew as we go from sea to air and then beyond. How have we not talked about the Starship Enterprise yet? I mean, there's a crew that makes its vehicle cooler, but whether it's the original NCC 1701, whether it's the Enterprise D, whether it's the Enterprise E, whether it's Defiant or Voyager or Discovery, you name it, those vehicles, even just on their own, are just so badass. We're going to talk about this, I think, a little more later, but um, I just want to touch on part of what does that is, is the unique design that the Star Trek universe has. Uh, whether it was um, you know, Matt Jeffries as production designer, I think there were some other folks involved in the, in the design of the original NCC-1701 Enterprise, but yeah, the, the nacelles, the hull, the saucer section, that sort of whole design concept has really been a, a great thing. And, and my, of the Enterprises, of the starships, uh, I think some notable ones, I've always been a fan of the first movie redesign 
the uh, the refit enterprise from uh, Star Trek's one through, I guess three, because then it blows up. Spoiler alert. Uh, and you know, even A is pretty cool, despite the fact that it doesn't quite work as advertised until six, and then it makes up for everything. D, I always thought was a cool regal looking ship. Um, it, it fit, as Dan says, I think it fit the crew, or maybe the crew made it sort of what it was. Um, one of my personal favorites has always been that Sovereign Class Enterprise E. I think that is a cool looking ship, whether it is for, you know, carrying an ambassador or for whether it's fighting some Romulans. That is a, maybe I'm biased because I also had that toy and it had some cool buttons and sound effects. But um, that's just a, a svelte design. And, and yeah, that, uh, that Enterprise E is among the favorite, uh, among my favorite of Starship classes. I also thought, these are some little known ones since we're doing some dork deep cuts here, but in, uh, in the opening battle scene of First Contact, you can see a couple of one-off designs. And one of them I always thought was cool was an Akira class Starship. It's kind of, it's almost like a T design. It's got the saucer section wide, like, uh, like an ambassador class, you know, any one of these ones might but it goes flat backwards and then the nacelles breach out from the side. So it almost looks like a fighter. It's a, it's a, it's a neat design. Something that all the enterprises and the Orca had to do was not only be cool designs, but also be an effective set for these characters. Half of Jaws takes place aboard the Orca and you've got these, think of at least like four distinct areas of this small boat that Spielberg can put all his all these great characters that Dan was talking about in and use those dynamics to help tell the story. All the Enterprises do it the same way, where the interior of this ship has to be the the set for all for all these characters to live and work in, and the the, the bridge design for the Enterprise D, I think, is the is the pinnacle of bridge design for me probably the the original ncc 1701 was uh you know pioneering and groundbreaking but the but the elegance of the enterprise d bridge the tactical station uh the, the way the helm and con consoles kind of swung out the semicircular command chairs set up where you you got like the the best chair in the center for the captain and then two pretty good seats for you know for your next two off to the sides and then these two pretty much just like benches right at, at the very end so you can tell a clear pecking order and then uh, around the back they make good use of space with the with the a bank of science and engineering stations around the back of the bridge well, we're talking about cool starships. I, I know there's a bunch of Star Trek fans out there, if they're listening, that will kill us if we don't mention the Defiant, that tough little ship. Uh, again, you talk about a, a design classic, but that's a, that's a form and function dream right there. Uh, and that's just, a, that's a really cool, that's the closest Star Trek, is, mainstream Trek has ever come to uh, a fighter craft. Defiant really is. I, I also have always been a fan I've not been as much a fan of the Voyager TV series, but I do think that Starship is really cool, particularly with the nacelles that sort of bend up when it's time to go to warp. And I know that I am the biggest discovery guy in this group. I happen to really like the design of that ship as well. But as cool as Starfleet got its ships, it always felt like the bad guys just aesthetically got it a little cooler. When you think about the original Klingon vessels, when you think about the original Romulan Warbird, if you thought the original Romulan Warbird couldn't get any cooler, then Next Generation shows up, and all of a sudden that Romulan Warbird is like, whoa, 
okay, now we are in some serious business. The Borg Cube is so is such a simple design, but it's so simple and menacing at the same time, and it so perfectly encapsulates what the Borg are about. They are about a simple functioning machine that if you look at them sideways, they will own you. That's what they were, and that's what that ship was. And so Star Trek, I mean, through the years, basically it was a blank canvas, right? I mean, you're dealing with all these alien races. You can do whatever you want. Even think about the original Tholian vessels, those little sort of triangular-shaped crafts that would yeah, form the Tholian web. web. Yeah. I mean, just really, really cool designs. You could basically do anything. And they had some misses, but they mostly had, I thought, a lot of hits. It's one of the things that makes Star Trek IV so fun is that the, the good guys finally you know, get to fly around in a Klingon bird of prey. Speaking of the the, the ships where like pieces of them like, are, are like mechanically in motion, the way the wings of the bird of prey would go into sort of attack mode was always one of my favorite things. Uh, as long as we are in outer space dorks, we've got to get around to Star Wars. I'll start this section of the conversation by talking about the Millennium Falcon, which is quite simply the coolest vehicle that has ever been designed by any human being. So I guess we could just end the podcast right here. I was going to say, that's it, right? We're done. <laughs> if, we, if we had said the words Millennium Falcon 30 minutes ago, our, our listeners would have been put out of a lot of dorky misery. I mean, she may not look like much, but she's got it where it counts. Am I right? Uh, no, the Falcon is, and the Falcon has a, has a unique position too. A couple of Star Wars ships have this, but um, we sort of touched upon this. There's not a whole lot of ships. The Enterprise is, is an exception, but there's not a whole lot of vehicles in particular that can also act as mascots for their own franchise. I mean, the, the, the Millennium Falcon is simply iconic. I mean, it's, it's a great design, this sort of weird, you know, bitten donut shape. You know, and you've got them just off to the pilots are just just off to one side, almost like an afterthought. And the whole thing, I mean, and you talk about sets on there. You've got that sort of crew cabin. You've got the, the cockpit. You've got the gunner's station. You've got the cargo hideaway spots, lest we forget. Uh, the Millennium Falcon is just firing on all cylinders all the time. And it's always threatening to fly apart. And yet she always holds together, baby. She always holds together. I think the, the design of the Millennium Falcon 2 perfectly encapsulates what Star Wars is all about. It's a little dirty, it's a little gritty, it's a little imperfect, and that's part of what makes this universe work, right? George Lucas wanted to create a future universe that looks like it's been lived in. That lived in idea is where the prequels really go wrong because they don't look lived in, but the original trilogy does, and, and obviously the newer trilogy has, has really adopted that. That's in part why Mandalorian is so successful and Rogue One is so successful. But Millennium Falcon looks lived in. Obviously, this is a place where these two people and probably people before them have literally set up shop and tried to make a living. And it's not a perfect vehicle. It's hyperdrive doesn't always work. And there are certain foibles about the ship, but that's what makes it so fun and so relatable and so perfectly encapsulates what Star Wars is all about. Elsewhere in Star Wars, uh, Gabe, you mentioned the the Defiant as a fighter craft, Star Wars overflowing with cool fighter crafts, X-Wing, Y-Wing, uh, and A-Wing, probably my favorite. Uh, B-Wing never probably got 
as uh, as as much interest from me mostly because the the darn toy wouldn't wouldn't stand up so <laughs> it wasn't as much fun to play with um but also the star destroyer is um is a terrific design too uh, not a fighter craft but dan the the way you describe the borg ship being menacing and emblematic of the borg character i think star destroyers are also menacing and emblematic in their design of the galactic empire. We spoke of micro machines earlier. I, uh, I just want to give a shout out to one of my favorite toys. This is a very fond Christmas memory was the millennium Falcon micro machine set that came with like a hangar bay. You could put uh, toy X wings or Y wings in there. You had a, a little sort of like Han and Chewie you could put in there was a, and there was a missile firing gunner station at the top. It didn't. It wasn't spring loaded. You sort of had to push them out. So I felt a little gypped at the time. But boy, that was a really that was an awesome toy. And that, that you know speaks to what you were talking about too, Dan. Where the crew kind of makes the ship also in that sense. I mean, it is it is a lived in vessel. It's there's a reason that when Spaceballs came around, they had this beat up you know Winnebago type uh, van as as sort of you know the the stoner vehicle for Lone Star and uh, and John Candy. I can't remember what was his name there. I can't remember what his name was. Barf. Barf, that's right, Barf. That's, yeah, that's the first, that's the opening one. And yeah, the uh, Star Wars has a bunch of, even, you know, we mentioned the Mandalorian, the Razor Crest is a really cool, even sort of the ancillary ships are, uh, are really cool. You know, uh, Boba Fett's Slave One is, is another great design and it gets a, a cool featured moment in Attack of the Clones when it's got that awesome Sonic Mine uh, effect. And, and I've always been a sucker too, we're talking about fighters of the, uh, I've been a sucker for the design of the Jedi Starfighter that Obi-Wan's flying at that point. Um, that's one thing that actually I think the prequels do get right, if I can defend them briefly, is they do good echoes of what we know is to come um, later in the franchise. You know, whether it's the clone starfighters that sort of have those those uh, S-foils, the, the X-foils from the, um, I'm not sure which they are, uh, that would later we'd see in our heroic X-wings, or whether it was um, sort of some tie designs that we saw in the Separatists that we would later blend together. But yeah, Star Wars has always been leading the way in terms of space vessels. And I just want to give one quick shout out to a lesser known one, uh, the, uh, if we're talking about Humps of Junk, the Serenity from Firefly deserves one quick shout out. That's, uh, we talk about a ship that'll always get you out of a tight spot. Uh, Serenity's there for you. She'll fly. Like a, like a leaf on the wind, Gabe. Like a leaf you, on the wind. Don't you do this to me, man. Don't you do this to me. Yeah, that's, that's a whole different topic for a whole different day. I don't think our listening audience has enough time for me to rant and rave about what an injustice it was that Firefly was canceled when it was. But that ship is basically Joss Whedon's Millennium Falcon, too. I mean, that is a lived-in, imperfect vessel that is basically, it, it's, the habit, it's the habitat for this crew. Uh, and I think, it's, I think it's a really, it's a beautiful homage, if not sort of a, a Millennium Falcon 2.0 for that. Uh, but before we wrap on Star Wars, I think you guys mentioned all the good guy fighter vessels i just have to talk about tie fighters tie fighters tie bombers tie interceptors each one cooler than the last and that's all i have to say about that plenty of other cool spaceships in movies that don't begin with the word star Uh, my favorite is uh prometheus uh from the movie prometheus this is a movie that i watched exclusively because i thought the spaceship looked cool in the trailer and 
it was on Netflix or something or other. And I was like, oh, it's that that movie with that cool spaceship. I'll watch it. And it totally delivered. I, I love the design of that spaceship. I got a soft spot for Prometheus. And, and no, I agree. That's a um, Ridley Scott will always deliver on a few interesting ideas, as he did before. Uh, if we're talking about uh, Prometheus, we got to mention the Nostromo uh, from Alien. That, that again, sort of a, that cargo, that blue-collar work vessel. It's a it's a mining vessel, isn't it? Yeah, and they're and they're trying to just get themselves, uh, get themselves a living. And yeah, Prometheus is a is a great early nod to that too. And movie can be a mixed blessing, but I, I enjoyed its messaging. <laughs> I should mention also, uh, since I'm still me, the uh, the Milano and the Benatar from Guardians of the Galaxy. It's not quite as iconic as some of the stuff we're discussing on here, but that's uh, that's again a pretty fun ship at, during a time when I thought that most of the uh, somebody's going to unlock a great ship design again, but the Milano and the Benatar, that classic sort of hawkish design is a, uh, uh, it's a really fun bit. Any, any other things you guys want to mention before we wrap this up? Things that don't quite fit the mold. I've always been oh. the speeder bikes since we're talking about star Wars myself. That was, that was a favorite vehicle as a child. I wanted one of those badly. Well, I think we all know it's a general rule on Dorkfest, the podcast, that when Gabe begins to talk about Marvel, it's time to move on. Uh, so I'm going <laughs> to go ahead and uh, award the one point for this question. It's going to go to Gabe just because I, I, I roasted him so severely right there. I have to try to claw back some, some, some favor with my cousin. So one point for you, Gabe. And now uh, we're going to take this podcast to ludicrous speed with our number two point question what makes all these vehicles that we've just named stand out gabe you're up uh, you really didn't have to do that josh but obviously certainly i'll take the point we've talked about the design of a lot of these vehicles and i think that's honestly a lot of it some of these things just plain and simply look cool dan said it earlier with anything that comes out of batman the animated series they had a a perfect design aesthetic on there. Um, I think the Aston Martin, while being a cool car in the in the first place, makes a good effort at you know concealing all of its little hidden secrets, and that's a lot of the fun of the oh it does this, oh it does that, oh it does this too. You know it helps them out, helps them out of this spot. You know the way Q branches, as with the Lotus, uh, as with the winterized Aston Martin, he's always able to help them out of particularly the right spot. We you know we talk at length about Star Wars. I'm gonna I'm gonna continue on that train. You can watch. Harrison Ford and uh, you know whether it's Peter Mayhew or or I can't remember his last name but Jonas the new Chewbacca actor you can see how they're or or Daisy Ridley is right you know you can watch them work the cockpit of the Falcon and you know they know how it works um, these things are set up to be manipulable you know you, it's so much so that Disney erected a whole theme park around the uh, the Millennium Falcon you know they know people want to get on this thing and uh, you know whether you're looking at the targeting systems on one of these fighter craft. Um, or whether you're looking at, you know, sort of the, the tight quarters of the cockpit when uh, when Finn and Poe are in an escaping First Order TIE fighter in Force Awakens. These things are all, what makes them work is they're not just cool, they look like they work. Uh, and that's a lot of, the, it, it can't just be, you can have something that looks interesting, but, you know, if you can't explain, part of the fun of for us dorks is if it doesn't look like it works and we can't quite figure it out for ourselves, is the parking brake on? Asks Captain Pike in Star Trek 09. Uh, and, you know, we can tell that it sort of is. He, we watch Sulu take off the inertial dampeners, and we can, you know, we can sort of see the the go uh, lever. I personally think part of the relatability about how things work comes from being able to make them work on our own. And the point I'm trying to get to is the toys. 
we've talked already a little bit about having toys as kids or the micro machine version of these vehicles. And part of what allows you to understand how they work is actually putting them into function on your own. And I think the best example of this for me is astonishingly a franchise we didn't touch on in the one point question, and that is G.I. Joe. When it comes to toy versions of vehicles, I don't think anybody has ever gotten it any better than mid to late 80s G.I. Joe, whether it's the Cobra Rattler, the Tomahawk Helicopter, the Snowcat, the Night Raven, the Trouble Bubble. I mean, the list goes on and on and on about these very, very truly cool designs that from the screen of the cartoon, you could then pick up at your local toy store. The characters would fit right in. The guns would turret. The missiles would fire. You could put two guys in the cockpit of the tomahawk. And then there was still room to put the quote-unquote landing party in the back bay, the Cobra Rattler. You have the driver at the front and the other guy who sits in the middle and operates the gun turret. You could operate your toy exactly the way it was in the show. And I just thought that was so cool. It's one thing to have a great design, as Gabe said, but then to have a functional piece in your hand, it just really drives home that fandom. G.I. Joe toys are really, for, for Dan and I, just in our nostalgic comfort zone. I, I can think of two specific instances. One where our dad came home from work in the city with a Cobra Fang helicopter. And it, was, it wasn't a birthday, it wasn't Christmas, it wasn't an occasion, uh, it, was, it was just a present. And it was it was as if buried treasure had been uncovered. It, it was the the coolest toy. And the, the second one is when I was gifted uh, the GI Joe the General, which was a sort of like tank battle station all at one type deal. Santa Claus was up very late at night assembling this for me, but it was just such a cool toy. But we also have strong nostalgic feelings for those vehicles and i'm sure that plays no small part in in why we remember them so fondly another aspect of these vehicles that i think makes them makes them so special is is this like lovable loser type aspect that some of them possess uh, i'm thinking of the ecto 1 colombo's peugeot quince orca you know, they're held, the Millennium Falcon at times, they're held together with duct tape. They have to be kicked or punched in just the right way to uh, induce function. You have to turn the key just a certain way to, 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 to get it to start. It makes them feel more real. It makes them feel more lived in. It develops a relationship between the vehicle and the driver or, or, or the passenger. It makes you root for these vehicles when they're not working. Like, come on, get it together, Millennium Falcon. Leia's rolling her eyes again. This lovable loser mentality is, is something that I just love about vehicles in movies and TV. 
And I think for all of its sleek design and its fancy pants technology, the DeLorean has to fall into that category. How many times will this darn thing not start? Yeah, that thing never worked right. <laughs> Poor Marty McFly is sitting at the starting line, which Doc Brown has calculated. This is the exact spot. And when the alarm goes off, you hit the gas, and we've calculated all out, 88 miles per hour, you're going to be good to go. And the darn thing won't start until Marty McFly slams his head against the steering wheel. And only then will the blasted machine finally get going. And then Mr. Fusion goes haywire and the flying circuits are fried. The time circuits are always switching on and off. You're right, Dan. The DeLorean is a classic example of that. Now, I hate to be a broken record, but returning to, uh, or while we're talking about these lovable losers, I, I'd like to go back to the Star Wars well, because again, we're talking sort of around the idea of the Millennium Falcon. This is, uh, you know, I mean, it was mentioned here. You, you hit it a couple of times, then the hyperdrive will work. You know, you upload a droid's, a droid's consciousness into it, yeah, then maybe it'll be able to navigate the galaxy. But that is also the, the Falcon, and we touched on this a little bit uh, earlier as well, but it has the distinction of itself being kind of a surrogate mascot for Star Wars when you're in its merchandising in just sort of shorthand. You can put a Millennium Falcon on a T-shirt anywhere, and you know, you'll be able to, okay, cool, that person's a Star Wars fan. You get that. You know, it doesn't have to have any text or anything like that. Any design you want. If it's the Falcon, if it's recognizable, you get it. It's Star Wars. Uh, Star Trek has that too uh, with the Enterprise. You know, again, that's that design is iconic and it's unique. Going from the nacelles to the the body of the of the ship, you know, the hull through, through to the saucer section, which can separate sometimes. Another fun little bit of design. And interestingly, Dan, it's good that I, I like that you uh, have an affinity for Voyager because that itself is harkening back earlier in the episode, an intrepid class starship. So you, we've brought this sort of full dorky circle. But again, these are things that can stand as a shorthand for the universes we find them in. And you look at something, the Batmobile can do the same thing. You look at something as iconic even as the DB5, though, the Aston Martin, and maybe some folks will get that. You know, you put that on a T-shirt, we'll understand what's happening. But I think for most people, it's like, oh, well, there's a cool car on, on that person's T-shirt. You know, that's a neat thing. It is interesting what it is that separates something iconic. And it is almost the idea of vehicle as character, as an extension of character, maybe, as we're talking about it here in this lovable losers kind of idea, that it is, um, you know, the Falcon is itself an extension of, dare I say it, us? No, but really, you know, Han and Chewie and, and Ray and, and, and Finn and whoever else is going to fly, you know, Poe's X-Wing is its own thing. He's the only one who has a certain, Poe Dameron is the only one who has a certain kind of X-Wing. Um, even Luke's Red 5 uh, X-Wing, you know, they recognize that call sign in Rise of Skywalker. The the ships do take on the aspects of, of their characters. I think this vehicle as icon probably works easiest with spaceships, Gabe, and so maybe that's why the, the DB5 doesn't necessarily have that. But as the, the listeners can't tell, but Gabe and I can, the DeLorean uh, is clearly uh, getting some getting some play on on t-shirts because that's what Dan's wearing right now. right now. But another one that I think works as this icon for a franchise, and I feel comfortable saying franchise because there's been two of them, is the Mini Cooper in in the Italian job. Certainly in in America, that's a that that's a unique car. Once you've seen that movie or 
maybe just speaking for me personally, I instantly, anytime I see a mini associate it with, with the Italian job, um, preferably the, the Michael Caine version, but, uh, you know, Marky Mark gave it the old college try, eh? You were only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. All right, lads, I got a great idea. I do think you have to have the three Mini Coopers to really make that work. That definitely is what um, I think sells it. But uh, you know what? As while we're talking about iconic cars, the Ecto-1, you put that on a T-shirt, you don't have to have any other Ghostbusters. Uh, Turtle van, it's probably the same thing. Admittedly, both of those vehicles benefit from, I think, having iconography of their own on the vehicle, uh, identifying what they belong to. I think the iconic nature of these vehicles comes into play, at least for me, when in my wildest dreams, I envision a world where I get to sit in them. We've all sat here and we've all thought, oh my God, how much do I want to sit in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon? How badly do I want to sit behind the wheel of the original classic Aston Martin DB5? How badly do I want to take to that swiveling captain's chair on the original bridge of the USS Enterprise? It's those, it's those incredible memories or those links that we have to bits within these vehicles that at least to me enhance the iconography. You know, I watch Back to the Future and I think, by God, I would love to drive not just any DeLorean, but that DeLorean, the time-traveling DeLorean. I would love to sling pizzas in an alternate reality out of the turtle van. I would love, oh my God, I could think of a dozen G.I. Joe vehicles right now that I would love to plot myself into. And it's having those sort of childhood fantasies that I think enhances the iconography. And I think it's, it's best displayed in our tried and true marquee franchises when you think about Star Wars and the Millennium Falcon, you think about Star Trek and the Bridge of the Enterprise, whether that's the original NCC 1701 or the Enterprise D or James Bond in the Aston Martin. Funny you should pose that question, Daniel, as that is where we are headed next on DorkFest, the podcast. But before we move on, I'm giving two points to Gabe for the Michael Caine accent, the Chris Walken. Wasn't even uh, that. Oh, I, the fact that you chose that, that you went with only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. You had me right there, Gabe. Two more points for you, sir. But now, dorks, we're going to need to back up because I don't think we have enough road to get up to 88. Roads, where we're going, we don't need roads. And for three points, dorks, you each are going to give out what I'm calling the I Gotta Get Me One of These award. As Dan was saying, we've all envisioned a world in which we could get behind the wheel or climb aboard one of these vehicles. And now I'm going to make you pick just one. Time, space, money, physics are all no object which is the one that you would choose to cruise around in? I might as well just come out and say it. I think I have to choose, given everything, the Batmobile. And as to which Batmobile, 
that's a different question. And I'm thinking about it even as I say this sentence. Um, I could sort of take the cheaty route and say, oh, I'd like to ride the, ride the Batmobile that Grant Morrison wrote and issue, you know, 400 and something else of Batman. But I think if all things being equal, I've, I've got to take a ride in the animated series Batmobile. It's a great car. It's got a lot of functionality to it. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of room in that car. It's deceptively roomy. Batmobile has to do a lot of stuff. So I think it would be fun to take a quick joyride, you know, even if you want to go cross country with it. I'm, it might not get great mileage than Batmobile. It's true, you know, you know, it's made for city driving, but at least the toy version has that jet in there. And you know what? I bet you it's the Batmobile. It's advanced enough that even if I were to back off in that jet and fly around for a little while, the car probably just keeps driving on the road. You know, eat your heart out, Elon Musk. I'm certain Bruce Wayne's figured that out. So I, I think I'd take the animated series Batmobile just to take a. Uh, a drive around in that. If I get an asterisk, if I get a, a uh, you know, a silver medal choice, I think I might just take a Green Lantern ring. That's kind of cheating. It's totally cheating, Gabe, but that's classic shifty Gabe. So, I mean. <laughs> what else am I here for, gents? <laughs> I'm just glad that you chose the animated series, uh, Batmobile. But I am curious, we probably don't have time in this particular podcast. I am curious how the animated series Batmobile is quote deceptively roomy because it looked awfully cramped and the toy was in fact so cramped you could only fit one action figure in not the side by side well, i mean what do you what do you think is in all that trunks uh, not trunk space hood space i mean that thing's got a you know you've got the driver's seat yeah and then you've got 20 yards of steel and then you've got the front of the car you know i don't know how he makes turns i clearly there's going to be a, a learning that, that, curve, learning how to pilot this vehicle that's, that's it all that stuff has to be used for something. It can't just be weapons. You know, there's a sick bay on there. There's like a little, you can put Mr. Freeze in the corner before you get him to Arkham or something like that. <laughs> That's where I was going to take exception with your designation of it as a city vehicle. I, I, I would love to see you try to parallel park that Batmobile game. <laughs> Batman don't parallel park. He just leaves the car, you know, he just leaves his blinkers on in the main lane. Batman don't care. Oh my God. He Batman's one of those... Batman's one of those darn double parkers. Unbelievable. You know, you know, he's Bruce Wayne. So the concept of parking alone, I think, is probably, you know, Alfred does the driving. Bruce Wayne doesn't have to worry about parking fees or tickets. Fair point. If, if Alfred comes along with your Batmobile, then I think you've definitely made a, a terrific choice, Gabe. I'm going to go with the, the Aston Martin DB5 from 1964 from Goldfinger. It is a dream of mine to fly to London and you know do do I, I've, I've never been to, to England I'm not a tr tremendously like well-traveled vacationer and so this is sort of my dream vacation to fly to London do all the London stuff and then drive the Aston Martin DB5 up to Scotland and then play all the Scottish golf courses uh, but that Aston Martin DB5 was the, the first car that I ever looked at and thought, wow, that is a cool car. Kind of gotten more into cars as, as I've grown up. Um, it's not something that we were tremendously steeped in as, as kids. Car culture certainly was not part of that. But the Aston Martin DB5, just how cool that was. And then how menacing it became with all of the, the gadgetry and uh, I, I would just relish the thought of being able to flip up 
the the knob of the gear shifter with one of you in the passenger seat and just watch you squirm about whether I was going to eject you or not. I mean, so that's my choice. It's obvious. I don't care. It's the the absolute dream of mine, and, and it is in in some crazy world almost attainable in in theory. So. I'm I'm going to cling to that dream for as long as I possibly can. Dan, how about you? So you're right. Yours is maybe mildly attainable. Mine is most certainly not going to be. I mean, here on Dorkfest, the podcast, we have asked some really difficult questions of one another over the past several months. I think this is without question the most difficult question that has been posed to this group so far. To have to choose one iconic vehicle and only one. You guys have thankfully already taken two off the table. So now my my choices are, are a little bit limited only because I don't want to double up because obviously the Batmobile animated series and the Aston Martin DB5 have to be in the equation for anyone participating in this podcast. So now I'm left with with the two star franchises. And which direction do I go? Do I go the the old bucket of bolts that can't get up to hyperdrive? Or do I go the other realm in which I have to choose which version of the Enterprise I want to sit in? And I am going to say, and I'm going to regret it the moment I'm sure that it comes out of my mouth, because I'm clearly stalling here, because I'm not quite sure what I want to say, but I am going to go with the Starship Enterprise, and I am going to say the original NCC-1701, and the only reason I'm doing this is because for me, nostalgically, Star Trek rates ever so slightly higher than Star Wars. I have more fond memories of Star Trek movie viewings and outings and events with you guys and and those like us than I do with Star Wars. It is a marginal difference, but I, I rate Star Trek ever so slightly higher. And yes, I grew up a huge fan of The Next Generation, and that is my favorite version of Star Trek. But the original introduction came with the original series, and it came with Kirk and Spock and Bones, and it came on the bridge of the Enterprise. So I'm going to take the swivel chair with the red and the yellow punch buttons and with Yeoman Rand passing off the, uh, the antiquated Etch-A-Sketch for me to sign on the dotted line that we're ready for our next mission. And I'm going to say warp speed five, Mr. Sulu. Tongue and cheek, lantern ring joke aside, I think that is my. If I were to have a, a second chance to drive or a pilot or ride in anything I'd ever want, it'd be the Enterprise, and I think it would be that Enterprise. That's an excellent choice, Dan. Yeah, and and Dan, that's going to earn you the three points for for this question, uh, if if only because um, I I'm pretty sure I can hitch a ride on said Enterprise and. As much as Gabe insists that the Batmobile is roomy, I'm not so sure. So um, your ride is totally contingent upon whether you use that ejector seat button while I'm sitting <laughs> passenger side or not. 
I, I eject Gabe and then park and you beam me up. I think that should work. The right? gal, the gal, Leo Seven, it's on its way to get you. Eject me right into my Batmobile. <laughs> I'll chase you down before you hit orbit. My my windows and 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 the bodywork is all bulletproof. You 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 cannot touch me with your batarangs. Um, we're gonna have to leave it here because we could just go on and on and on about everything that we would do to each other in, in, in these vehicles that would be both playful and destructive. Dan gets the three points. If my math is correct, I believe that makes for a tie. And so to a crown to crown a winner for this podcast, I am going to go back to um, my my selfish desire to reward the people who talked about the things that I love. And I'm giving it to Gabe because he mentioned Ghostbusters twice. And I don't think Dan mentioned Ghostbusters at all. Ghostbusters is, is one of my absolute faves that combined with the Michael Caine accent. Sorry, Dan, you never stood a chance. And it just goes to show what little trifling terrible things we we use to assess our, our knowledge our greatness in these matters what are the what are the little mean no i will absolutely take that thank you for for the vehicular crown josh i will i will wear it proudly and i will always return the millennium falcon without a scratch congrats gabe don't worry enterprise has torpedoes locked on the uh, batmobile so enjoy your victory while you can and here we go again uh congratulations dork as gabe said i i think we made it through this this podcast as promised without a scratch now i'm afraid it's time to say farewell and adieu my fair dorks thanks so much for joining us quick reminder to please rate review subscribe on apple google spotify wherever you procure your podcasts uh you can also track us even through hyperspace on instagram uh, that's dorkfest underscore podcast. Thanks again for listening. Keep your radio dial tuned to this station for more episodes of Dorkfest the Podcast. If the ship's as fast as he's boasting, we ought to do well. What a piece of junk. She'll make point five past light speed. She may not look like much, but she's got it where it counts, kid. I made a lot of special modifications myself, but we're in a little rush. So if you'll just get on board, we'll get out of here.